The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. All right, I want to welcome you and thank you for attending. This is far more people than I expected to see here this evening, so it's uh, very interesting. Uh, I don't know if it's my humility or what, but I only made 40 copies of the uh, words to the song you're going to be hearing at the end of this performance, so if you... Uh, don't have a copy of the words, just have to try to listen a little harder or share with someone next to you who does have the words. Um, I wanted to explain why I ended that meditation the way I did. I've given some talks on anger to the 12-step uh, mindfulness group. And uh, the first time I did that, and I had that piece in the meditation about getting in touch with your anger and asking if people if it helped to dispel the anger, well, when I ended with that and uh, rang the bell and looked up, half the people looked really ticked off because they hadn't been able to dispel at the edge of that anger. So I thought, well, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to give people an alternative here. So, so the title of my uh, talk is Transforming Anger. Now, the title I originally proposed was Working with Anger, um, but it default, defaulted to this title of Transforming Anger, because that was the title that this talk has been given in the past. And speaking of the past, I wanted to acknowledge the gentleman, Craig Ballmer, who uh, gave this talk in the years gone by and was also the founder of our 12-step mindfulness group. Uh, Craig was a very, very important, valuable member of our community, and especially for those of us, those of us working uh, a recovery program. Anyway, the title could have just as well have been Healing Anger, as Transforming Anger, because that's the title of a book by the Dalai Lama that was one of my resources for this talk. What I found interesting about this is how the subject and the object can be interchanged. So if we're healing, if we call it healing or transforming anger, are we healing or transforming the anger? Or is the anger healing or transferring us? transforming us. Now, this isn't a cone. It's not like one of those things, what's the sound of one hand clapping? I just thought it was kind of an interesting idea that I'd like you to uh, maintain a little in interest in as we go through the talk. So, uh, what is this thing called anger? It has been called the most confusing of all emotions, at least partially because it is quite complex, containing strands of other emotions all woven together, as I suggested in the meditation. How many of you have felt some confusion as part of the discomfort around your, your anger or others' anger, perhaps because of not fully understanding it? Anybody else have a little confusion about their anger out there? All right, well, the rest of you can leave. No, just... My thought is that you may view anger as an individual emotion or as one aspect on a continuum that can range from minor irritation to full-blown rage. Here, we'll be using the term in a broad aspect to cover the entire con continuum. In Buddhism, anger is described as one of the three forms 
excuse me, is described as one form of aversion. And aversion is seen as one of the three root poisons that keep us from experiencing our Buddha nature. Well, I had an experience with his anger, a point on the continuum or the entire continuum as a parent. I can recall when my young son would say to me, Dad, you're so angry. And my response, of course, would be, Anger? You think this is anger? You want to see some anger? (laughs) He didn't experience what I was experiencing the same way I was experiencing it. What a shock. So my story around anger is that I just thought it was bad, something I had to totally avoid, and that I thought I was bad because I got angry too frequently. As a result of my recovery and study of Buddhist concepts, I have come to see that anger is really just one of many afflictive emotions and a source of suffering. Sharon Salzberg, a Western Buddhist teacher and author, wrote about the suffering associated with anger. I'd like to share her words. Anger and aversion express themselves in acts of hostility and persecution. The mind becomes very narrow. It isolates someone or something, fixates on it, develops tunnel vision, sees no way out, fixes that experience, that person or that object as being forever unchanging. Anger can bind people to each other as strongly as desire, as desire, so that they drag each other along, connected through various kinds of revenge and counter-revenge, never being able to let go, never being able to be still. One of the Buddhist teachings that helped me to overcome that simplest idea idea that it's all just bad, although as Sharon says, it really is pretty afflictive, uh, was the idea that there are two types of suffering. There's a type we run away from and that follows us and attaches to us and the type that we embrace and can learn from. So talking about the confusing confusing aspects of anger, I'd like to take uh, just a few minutes to share some other views on anger before we move on to its causes and some other perspectives on anger. Of course, we will start with the Buddha. Anger, with its poisoned source, and fevered climax, murderously sweet, that you must slay to weep no more. Shantideva was an 8th century monk who wrote The Way of the Bodhisattva, which continues to be an important text in Mahayana and Vajrayana traditions. The Dalai Lama wrote a commentary on one chapter of that work called Healing Anger, the power of patience from a Buddhist perspective, and we'll be talking about that a bit later. Shantideva said, a thousand eons of good works or venerating Buddha are wiped out 
in an instant of anger. Now, some scholars, including the Dalai Lama, feel that the word translated as anger here may actually be better understood as rage. And it makes a lot more sense that way as well. In the Dalai Lama's commentary, he, discover, he discusses that Shantideva really didn't distinguish at all between anger and rage. But the Dalai Lama does. The Dalai Lama says that rage is anger plus. Anger plus wishing ill will upon the source of that anger. So again, that helps us to see this as a continuum, that anger is here. Rage is a step farther and has that additional component of wishing ill will. Sharon Salzberg, who I mentioned already, characterizes anger or rage as an outward manifestation of aversion or dislike, which can manifest inwardly as fear, grief, disappointment, or despair. Another Western Buddhist teacher, author, and psychologist, Tara Brock, says vengeance is a lazy form of grief. Aristotle had some other things to say. He saw a positive aspect of anger. He said, anger can be appropriate if for right reasons, with the right people, and for the right length of time. One who doesn't get angry when confronted with the right reasons is seen as a fool. But anger, if not acted on wisely, can be, can be destructive. Then we have our Christian tradition, which says God loves those who don't get angry. But if we look at the Old Testament, we will see, of course, that the Jewish prophets uh, were some pretty angry dudes. They got really mad about social injustice, and that has continued to be a tradition in the Jewish faith. And Jesus appears to have been angry when he got after the money changers in the temple. Spoiler alert, could there be something some connection between anger and love? Martin Luther King said, my work is constructively channeling anger and the dead end of the destructive use of anger. Just a couple more. Jack Cornfield, another great Western Buddhist teacher, says, we can find gold in our anger and judgment. For in them is the wisdom of justice and integrity. When we work with anger, it can be a valuable medicine. Transformed, anger can give us judgment and clarity to see what needs to be done, what limits need to be set. Bill W., the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, said in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, if we were lit to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of ordinary men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. But perhaps more important than what others have said about anger, what were the messages we got about anger when we were growing up? Now, there are differences between cultures. Anger 
is said to be suppressed in Northern Europe, as well as in Asia, not so much in Central Europe and Southern Europe. The dominant stereotype in our culture, of course, is that anger is not okay. And this is evidenced by the stereotype of dad being emotionally or physically violent when he was angry. And the stereotype of mom withdrawing her affection and love when she would be angry. So my hope in presenting all these different views of anger is that perhaps your feelings of confusion around anger will have been a bit normalized by these contrasting opinions and we'll move on to some views on the causes of anger and how to work with it. A Western teacher by the name of Rodney Smith gave a talk on anger that I thought was very good. And uh, he came up with three causes of anger. Uh, these are not distinct categories. Um, sometimes anger can have flavors of two or even all three of these causes. The first is having a need for life to be fair. This is a big issue for social activists and something that I will discuss in more detail in a minute. The second is losing control. Here our anger can be viewed from the law, from the perspective of a loss of control, such as losing our car keys or having a relationship ended. Of course, the, the, the latter one, re, having a relationship ended, may also trigger a fairness button, uh, but hopefully losing our keys don't do that so much. Smith identifies a specific feeling associated with this experience of anger due to loss of control. He says that it may make us feel very unstable, that there is instability everywhere around us, that we are not solidly grounded. And from my experience, that is how I feel when I can't find my car keys. It's like, what happened? The whole world has changed. I went from one room to another. What I was going to go and get in that other room, I don't remember what it was. And it just seems like I'm floating around in the ozone somewhere. So I thought that was a pretty right-on description of what that experience is like. The third cause of anger is being discounted, diminished, disrespected, or ignored. And this can result from feeling you are not being heard or being put down. And Smith says that this tends to fuel a self-pitying attitude. Why am I being treated this way? And this can enhance our feelings, our trance of unworthiness, a concept we will discuss in just a few minutes. And again, this can be considered as a lack of fairness to be dismissed and discounted. To give you a sense of some ways to practice with uh, those last two causes of anger, um, I'm going to ask you to assume the position for meditation again. 
take two or three slow, deep breaths to center yourself. I would ask you to bring to mind a time when you lost something or had something taken away from you and it led you to feeling some anger. This could be a relationship that the other person ended or losing a job or losing some functionality due to a physical issue. If you've been able to identify such a situation, take a moment to get in touch with the anger you felt at that time. Wherever you were on the continuum, from irritation to rage. Take a closer look at that anger and see if you can detect an awareness of emotional vulnerability underlying that sensation. Now bring your focus to your feelings toward that which has been lost. The relationship, the personal dignity you felt from that job. The physical functionality you may have lost. Whatever it was. Bring to mind the caring and compassion you had for that experience. This is different than the event of the loss. This is your emotion with whatever it was that has been lost.
So the practice I'm suggesting here is when you start to feel some anger, check it out. See if you can discern that it's connected to something that you've lost or that you are afraid you are going to lose. Use this practice to connect not with the event of losing, but with that which you have lost. This will put you in touch with your compassion. And when we're in touch with our compassion, anger is precluded. The two are incompatible. And the more we stay with that compassion, the less we will be with the anger. Or we may find that what we lost is not that big of a deal and we're taking it far too seriously. And the deal is, when you're angry, you're never going to figure that out because that anger not only constricts our heart, it also narrows our thinking to our anger or aversion for the person or event causing the loss, as Sharon Salzberg said. <coughs> so either we can go to that place of compassion or we may be able to figure out, huh, it wasn't such a big deal and get a little perspective and... Uh, maybe even laugh at ourselves a little. So now we'll go back to this first cause, the need for life to be fair. It does seem to be predominant for me and, and I suspect for many of us, so we'll spend some time discussing this. It truly was my hot button in the past. And of course, it can be a hot button for many of us. All that's different is the size of the button, and how big of an explosion it sets off. For me, it was a big button, and it was a big explosion. But the truth is, life isn't fair. The idea that it is, is really a product of our mind, not of our heart. Our mind tells us that big fish shouldn't eat little fish. But if we view it with our heart, we are likely to feel compassion and be accepting that that's the way nature is. That's the way life is. The reality is, life lives on life. So, one of the big problems with this anger that we feel from life needing to be fair and it not being, is that it is quite beguiling because it feels good. Anger with a sense of self-righteousness feels good because it basically operates from the thought, I'm right, you're wrong. And when we're in that position of being right and the other person being wrong, we set up a dualism between ourselves and the wronged and the wrong entity. And somehow that makes us feel a bit smarter or superior. Smith says that it sets us up as being the king of the hill, and this may be the only time we feel nobility in our lives. And of course, this encourages, encourages us to find more opportunities to experience that self-righteous anger because it makes us feel good. I mentioned earlier this trance of unworthiness that uh, Tara Brock writes about. 
it refers to a common personal belief in our culture that can range from self-doubt to self-hatred. Basically, it involves having a poor opinion of ourselves or not liking ourselves very much. She believes, and I have experienced, that this impact can impact a lot of our lives, many parts of our lives. It leads to doubt and anxiety and increases our fears. So rather than feeling this default, uncomfortable sense of self, <coughs> self-righteous anger makes us feel better, feel good about ourselves because we've got something here we can hang on to. I am right, and I am here to, to do the right thing. And in the context of what we're going to be talking about later, the Dalai Lama's approach, this um, trance of unworthiness can be seen to be fuel for our anger. Now, Rodney Smith says that even though it feels good, if our anger has even a tinge of an abrasive or divisive feel to it, it just isn't okay. Now, this may be difficult to accept because we may feel that not being able to generate self-righteous anger stands in the way of maintaining our intention and our energy to do good. I mentioned earlier that the reality is that life lives on life. And this can trigger a sense of unfairness. And when we take the literal, literal statement about fish eating fish metaphorically and think of oppressors of other humans who function like big fish, it can be even more difficult to consider this as something that arises in our head and not in our heart. In contrast, I'd like you to consider Martin Luther King and Gandhi, who sought to march toward unity and to have their example heal those who are stuck on anger. So the question becomes, how do we do that? We can't reasonably aspire to be an MLK or a Gandhi, but we can seek to develop techniques to relieve the suffering caused by our anger, to find an alternative to continuing to experience self-righteous anger. And the suggestion is to redirect, to redirect the focus from the wrong or the oppressive individual or entity to the issue underlying the dispute. I have a personal example of this. I grew up on the Iron Range in northeastern Minnesota, came from good Finnish stock that was uh, quite radical, left politically, and uh, that legacy propelled me into a career of working in or for the labor movement that I recently realized had worn me out. I got tired of fighting the good fight. And my experience supports Sharon Salzberg's opinion that we become attached to our self-righteous anger and it becomes a cycle as that anger generates energy 
to support the view that created the anger. So we've got this view, creates the anger, the self-righteous anger, supports the view, creates the anger, and away we go. It knows no end. So the practice is to get in touch with your deep caring around the issue and stay with it. In my case, I was so angry with the iron, with the mining companies and with the way working men and women are treated in this com- country, all I could focus was on the wrongs that were being done, not on the needs of the people I was representing. And that anger didn't really help me in negotiating s- sessions with employers. It was later, after I got into recovery, and I started to develop a different perspective, and even later, after I started getting in touch with compassion and uh, acceptance through my Buddhist meditation, mindfulness meditation practices, that I came to bring a different attitude to the negotiating table. And I have no doubt, I became a more effective negotiator. I was able to settle far more disputes on more favorable terms as I looked at the outcomes or the people I was representing and trying to generate in their best interest rather than just the oppositional resistance and fighting against the other. So frequently, it's not an easy process to get to the issue and let go of the anger. We may fear our emotions will be savaged if we try to move into a sense of interconnectedness. In my case, I felt I was betraying a legacy. I thought of all of those strikers in 1905 who got shot, wounded, blacklisted from the mines, subjected to extreme poverty. I thought, how can I have anything but anger and hatred for employers and the things they do? But with practice, I started to make some change. So that's not how it works. We don't get savaged. Living in harmony changes us so that we feel compassion due to injustice rather than righteous anger against the perpetrator. And this compassion can create an intention to do good and provide energy for the process. This is one way to transform anger. The alternative is to stay with the anger, which may make us feel like we are doing something when we really aren't. All we may be doing is feeling and expressing anger, and we do express anger, we're probably just expressing it to people who agree with us anyway. And if we're expressing it to others, we're probably not convincing them from that attitude. So moving to a place of compassion without the divisiveness of anger makes it clear what we need to do to address the issue. When we are angry, it is not only our heart that is constricted. Anger impacts our ability to develop a wider and more open perspective. Anger narrows our focus to opposing the other, or as I said earlier, made me a more effective negotiator. I was able to see more options, a different way of looking at things to come up with more creative solutions to benefit the people I was representing. So now why don't we try a bit of a meditation 
to enhance that practice. Because it seems like common ground is a magnet for social activists, I'd encourage you to bring to mind some political news or something a politician said or did that really irritated you or made you downright angry. Again, we're looking at that continuum. This could be something from the presidential debates or some action taken by some level of government related to war or the environment, whatever issues are important to you. If something one of the Republican candidates has said hasn't upset you, then I'm pretty sure there are several things that President Obama has done that have. So I want you to come up with one of those. Stay with that anger for a little while. As you're experiencing that anger, you find that your focus tends toward the person, entity, or event that is causing the harm? Now bring your gentle awareness to the issue that was either commented or acted upon. Whether it was about war, racism or police killings, homelessness, poverty, GLBTQ rights, whatever it was. Bring to mind what it is you care about regarding this issue that makes it important to you. Feel the caring, compassion, or love underlying your beliefs on this issue. Now bring to mind an interaction you have had with someone around that issue. What was your mind state like at that time?
Now I'll see if you can imagine that interact, how that interaction might have been different if you were experiencing your caring about the issue at that time. Would you have experienced the interaction differently? May there have been a different outcome? I hope that's a practice that you can use from time to time when you're feeling angry. Um, try to see if you can discern the issue underlying that anger and your feelings of care and compassion for that issue. And again, compassion and anger cannot coexist. So the more time we spend with our compassion for the issue, the less time we will be spending angry and the more effective we can be in whatever role we have with that issue. All right, now we're going to turn to the uh, some of the perspectives discussed by the Dalai Lama in the book I cited earlier. The Dalai Lama discusses uh, Shantideva's approach to anger, which is that the antidote to anger is patience. I don't know if any of you watched uh, Seinfeld, but uh, I didn't watch it very much. But I'll never forget the uh, one segment where, I think it was Jerry's dad, uh, he and his wife didn't get along so well. And uh, he was taking some anger management classes. And uh, she would be doing something that would really irritate him. And uh, Jerry's dad would yell out, Serenity, no! <laughs> so when I read this about patience in the Dalai Lama's book, it made me think of that Seinfeld episode. But that's not really the way it works. The Dalai Lama defines patience as a consciously adopted stand and resolute response against adversity stemming from a settled te temperament unperturbed by external or internal disturbances. So the Dalai Lama emphasizes that this is not submissiveness and that the Tibetan word interpreted here as patience also has qualities of tolerance and forbearance. Or as is commonly languaged in 12-step recovery, acceptance. So the Dalai Lama um, 
identifies a couple of key elements to overcoming anger. The first is to appreciate the negativity of anger, its dis dis destructive effects, which we discussed earlier in that quote from Sharon Salzberg. However, the Dalai Lama also notes that there is a potential for positive anger, such as the outrage against injustice, serving as a catalyst to powerful altruistic deeds. And of course, the practice we just discussed is another approach to that. The Dalai Lama also felt that it was important to develop an understanding of the causal mechanism for anger. He described the fuel of anger as a pervasive underlying sense of dissatisfaction, that things are not quite right, which may not even be felt at the conscious level, but is just there. Then, when something doesn't go our way, that is the spark to ignite that underlying fuel of anger. So again, we may have this underlying sense of dissatisfaction that things are not quite right, and then the spark goes off when things don't go our way, and out comes the angry outburst. Now, this seems like a corollary to the fairness button we discussed earlier, but I would like you to note that in the Dalai Lama's world, that sense of dissatisfaction does not include feelings about one's self. Sharon Salzberg tells the story about the Dalai Lama at a Q&A session being asked about uh, being asked to provide a practice for the questioner's feelings of uh, unworthiness, of not feeling good enough, and how that impacted her, her life. And the Dalai Lama asked his interpreter two or three times to try to explain that again, because he couldn't quite get it. And no matter how the interpreter tried to explain it, the Dalai Lama concluded that does not exist in our culture, that there are not there is not a trance of unworthiness in the Tibetan culture. And that's worthy for a consideration on its own right. If we take this Buddhist practice and the mindfulness and follow these teachings, can we get out from under that trance of unworthiness? It's an interesting thought. So when the Dalai Lama is talking about that sense of dissatisfaction, we can experience it on a much greater basis because of our trance of unworthiness that many of us experience. The Dalai Lama also describes uh, three general principles for developing patience to, to prevent anger from arising. First of all, the D Dalai Lama references plasticity of the mind. Now, this is a relatively new neurological concept that the Dalai Lama has been involved with uh, the research on. And uh, plasticity allows us to assume that our mind has a limitless capacity for improvement. That's the good news and the bad news, because it means we never get there, all right? Anyway, plasticity aspect is also stated uh, as follows, and that is that neurons that fire together, wire together. 
this means that if we have an habitual, if we, if we act a certain way, it's going to become a habit. And this suggests that neither acting out our anger by screaming, pounding walls or pillows, or suppressing our anger is, is a good idea because that will become our habitual way of dealing with anger. Instead, the Dalai Lama describes a middle way, which is to acknowledge our anger and to seek to transform it or to transform its causal condition. Another principle he discusses is to have a pragmatic approach. He says there is no single solution. We are to, he directs us to use our inner resources of both rationality and compassion to develop what works best for us. Well, for me, it was very confusing. I wanted, just tell me how to do this. Come on, you know, give me a practice that's going to work. And you go to these lectures, and it's this practice, that practice, this other practice. And it's like, well, this is just awfully confusing. And I hope that my presentation tonight doesn't have that effect. I would just encourage you to try different practices a little bit, see what works, and experiment and find something that works, and then stick with it for a while. And then you'll find another. It's a practice. That's why it's called a practice. It just keeps evolving. The Dalai Lama also wants to point out that the path is arduous and requires a long commitment. Now, that's a little hard to take. But he also points out that the rewards are potentially enormous, and there can be remarkable immediate benefits. And the Dalai Lama also has said that this makes it a very difficult path for Westerners where our culture is to go for what is fastest, easiest, and probably the cheapest. So we've got our work cut off for us here. Something else that the Dalai Lama mentioned in a Q&A section in, in this book, uh, I also wanted to point out, it's, all, it's a little unrelated, but I just found it to be so worthwhile I, I felt I had to bring it in. He was, he was asked a question about this Buddhist concept of around the self and the non-self. And bless his heart, the Dalai Lama said, this is a very complicated issue and that if anyone tells you they have a clear understanding of this concept, be extremely wary. Because <laughs> that's one that I have just struggled with and struggled with. And so that gave me some more faith in the pr to take this process forward. Because um, even the Dalai Lama sees it as being difficult. So those are the general principles. So what were the methods that the Shanti Deva advised for pre preventing anger through cultivating patience? Well, they're basically cognitive, using our rationality. For instance, Shanti Deva asks, if someone hits you with a stick, why get angry with the person? The person is merely the intermediary between the cause, which is the hatred or anger felt by that person toward you, and the instrument being used, which is a stick. And why shouldn't I be angry with myself instead? It is my body's intolerance to pain and my mind's thoughts about it that causes the suffering. So that, that's not my struggle with. It wasn't exactly my cup of tea to use rationality to that degree. So I will just refer you back to the book for more on that. 
There was one approach, however, that did resonate with me. And that was his approach to developing tolerance or patience through our understanding of reality. Here it's tied to the law of karma, and it goes something like this. Since all events arise from a multitude of causes and conditions, there really is no basis for choosing one specific cause or condition of harm that has been suffered and singling it out for our anger. To get to this understanding, we want to try to take a more holistic view of the world and of our lives. For instance, when we look at a piece of paper, we don't just see it as a piece of paper. We want to try to imagine it, imagine the tree that it came from. And not just that tree, but also the sunlight and the, and the rain that were needed for it to grow from a sapling. Also imagine the people who were needed to harvest the tree and make the paper. And the food and the water the sustenance that were needed by those people. And then there's the machinery. We won't go there. But you can see how if we can just view all of this, everything in our lives that holistically and see all the causes and conditions that are necessary just to get ourselves a single piece of paper. And then we take that to the sphere of why am I angry? And look at all of the causes and conditions that went into that it will help to perhaps just spread out that sense and really disperse the anger to such an extent that it is no longer significant for us. The problem, this problem of directing our anger toward only one cause or condition is consistent with the basic problem of anger we discussed earlier, which is, that it creates divisiveness in us and them situation, which completely prevents compassion from arising. I also like this teaching because it correlates with a teaching from Ernie Larson, one of the best recovery gurus uh, Twin Cities has ever produced. Ernie liked to say, when we'd be harmed, our tendency is, go to this, is to go to this place of, how could that person have done that? How could they have disrespected me? How could they have fired me from this job? How could they have been so unfair? And Ernie suggests, if we knew that person's entire history, if we knew all the factors influencing what that person did or the decision that that person made, we really wouldn't say, how could they have done that? our inquiry instead would be, how could they have done anything but that? Another teaching I like, which is related to this, is that if we can accept this law of karma, which is that everything occurs lawfully, not legally lawfully, but lawfully according to nature, and as a result of causes and conditions, then why? would we have an extraordinary reaction or response like anger or hatred to something 
that is completely ordinary. Interesting inquiries. Now, as you are considering that inquiry, I'd like to play a little music. This is a song by John Prime from his album, album Bruised Orange, and it is entitled Bruised Orange or Chain of Sorrow. We will then have a wrap-up and an opportunity for questions and answers. Like a long ago Sunday When I walked through the alley On a cool winter's morning To the church house Just to shovel some snow I heard sirens on the train track How naked getting neutered And altar boys been hit By a local commuter Just from walking With his back turned to the train That was coming so slow You can gaze out the window, get mad and get mad throw your hands in the air, say what does it matter, but it don't do no good to get angry, so help me, I know. For a heart stained in anger, grows a weak and grows bitter, you'll become your own prisoner as you watch yourself sit there wrapped up in a trap of your very own chain of sorrow I've been brought down to zero pulled out and put back in I sat on a park bench Kissed a girl with the black hair And my head shouted down to my heart You better look out, you know It ain't such a long drop Don't stammer, don't stutter From the diamonds and the sidewalk To the dirty and the gutter And you carry those bruises To remind you wherever you go You can gaze out the window Get mad and get mad Throw your hands in the air Say what does it matter But it don't do no good You get angry So help me I know For a heart stained in anger Grows a weak and grows bitter You'll become your own prisoner As you watch yourself sit there Wrapped up in a trap Of your very own chain of sorrow in the ass house come hill old come down like a long ago Sunday when I walked through the alley on a cool winter's morning to a church house just to shovel some snow I heard sirens on the train track how naked getting neutered and altar boys been hit by a local commuter just from walking with his back turned to the train that was coming so slow You can gaze out the window Get mad and get mad Throw your hands in the air Say what does it matter 
but it don't do no good to get angry. So it help me, I know. For a heart stained anger grows weak and grows bitter. You become your own prisoner as you watch yourself sit there wrapped up in a trap of your very own chain of sorrow. constantly amazed where I will find support for Buddhist concepts, even in a song from John Prine from the 70s. So to wrap up, just like to uh, say that I hope you haven't experienced anger as I did, as something being so bad, but if you have, I hope you can let go of that and see that it is an emotion like any other, complicated, but still just another emotion. As Paul Simon said in a song from Graceland about a friend who had several emotional breakdowns, anger comes and anger goes. It's what you're going to do about it. That's what I want to know. And also try to remember that anger can arise from several different causes. The challenge is to see the anger as something that is transitory and impermanent rather than a solid entity that we identify with and then either, as the Dalai Lama suggests, develop patience, tolerance, and forbearance so that we do not have an underlying sense of dis- dissatisfaction with life that can be triggered into anger when something goes wrong. Or get to the love, caring, or compassion underlying the anka, anger. As the Buddha said, hatred will not cease by hatred. Hatred will cease by love alone. And to end, I hope you are now able to answer the question, do we heal our anger or does our anger heal us? With a resounding yes. Thank you for your attention. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, Or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.